This is a Sunday talk by Joel titled, The City of God. It was recorded at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon, June 16, 1991. This morning I'd like to talk very briefly uh, about community, a spiritual community, and more specifically, an archetypal spiritual community. And then perhaps we can have a discussion about it. Uh, Plato wrote a book called The Republic, which is probably second to the Bible, one of the most influential books on Western culture. Uh, as the title suggests, it seems to be uh, an outline of an ideal state, political state. Uh, actually, Plato lived at a time very similar to our own, where Hellenic society was breaking down and going through a time of troubles, and uh, there were tremendous political problems, uh, and the, the uh, society was coming apart at the seams, it had lost its spiritual core, and Plato and a lot of people were quite aware of that, even as today we are quite aware of what's happening in our society. And so this, um, the Republic by Plato uh, is in the form of a dialogue between Socrates and a, a man named Glaucon. And uh, it's a, as most of Plato's uh, works are, it's a dialogue that goes back and forth, but uh, really it's a chance for Socrates to outline his ideal republic, his ideal political society. And there are many things about this that we would not like today. It's not a democracy. It has some very, uh, uh, to us, weird rules in uh, regulating poetry and the arts and things like that. Uh, but there are some also very progressive and in interesting things about it. For instance, uh, Plato insists that men and women are perfectly equal uh, in terms of the ability to govern this, uh, this republic, which was a rather novel idea, particularly in Plato's time in Greece at that time. It's also a, um, a society that uh, is built on merit or education. In other words, the, it, it ends up being a kind of a caste system where people fall by the time they're mature, but everybody starts out equal in terms of the opportunity to become a ruler of the society. I shouldn't say that to become a ruler of the society because there's a twist in this. The rulers of the society are going to be Gnostics. They're going to be enlightened people. And because Plato recognizes that anyone who becomes enlightened is not going to want to rule any society and has no uh, personal motives for power or whatever, they're going to have to be compelled to rule the society. So they're going to, in a sense you could say uh, poetically, they're going to have to be dragged out of their samadhis and forced to come rule the society, uh, which is an interesting sort of idea. At any rate, he outlines this, and, this, and the society is based on spiritual virtues uh, and uh, whatnot and so forth. And at the end of the, uh, the work, or at the end of book nine anyway, there's one extra book, uh, Glaucon says to Plato, he says, well, this is all wonderful and marvelous, and yes, you've convinced me that this is, would be the ideal society. He says, but I don't believe such a society ever existed, and I'll tell you what, I don't think it's ever going to exist. And Plato says, you're right. He says, it's a, uh, it's a republic that's laid up in heaven. And it doesn't matter whether it ever exists on earth. And that each of us can choose to be a citizen of this republic and to live our lives as citizens of this republic and not the earthly republics, if you like. 
This is a very interesting idea. This idea was picked up by St. Augustine several hundred years, six or seven hundred years later, in his work, The City of God, which is probably second to the Bible, maybe the most, second most influential book in Western society. And he was very familiar with Plato. And he took this idea and he said there are two cities and Christians, and he also, by the way, lived at a time of now the breakup and the, the uh, uh, time of troubles of the Roman Empire. And he said there are uh, two cities and Christians belong to the city of God. And he was living in a Christian community were uh, still surrounded by pagans and so forth. And the Romans, the non-Christian Romans, their allegiance is to the city of Rome, the earthly city. And the city of God is never conceived of as something that's going to be made manifest on earth. It's not a question of converting Rome into the city of God. You can't convert the worldly city into the city of God. Both Plato and St. Augustine would recognize this as a very utopian idea. But nevertheless, as a Christian, you were a citizen, if you like, of the city of God. And you lived your life as a citizen of this city, not the, the worldly city, not the earthly city of Rome. A lot of people think this is a purely Western idea, and this, this image of the city, uh, uh, or the Republic is, but the idea is not by any means confined to the West. We find it, for instance, in Chinese society and Confucianism. The basis of Confucianism, and which was uh, the basis of the Chinese sacred society, is that the norms, the Tao patterns of morality and behavior and goodness and virtue and so forth are laid up in heaven. They are the norms of heaven. And the sage is a sage to the extent that he or she uh, follows the norms of heaven rather than the norms of the world around you. And so you conform to the Tao, you conform to the norms of heaven. It's the same idea, this uh, conforming to this archetypal pattern this, uh, that embodies virtues and standards and morality and ways of behaving that is somehow above and apart from the worldly values that people around you hold. Now, what is the uh, import of this teaching, if you like, which is really a universal teaching. In one way or another, you'll find it in uh, all sacred societies. Well, I can only speak uh, from my life in terms of uh, how it was important to me, but perhaps you can recognize this in your life. When I was on my spiritual path, one of the hardest things was the distance that it put between me and the people who surrounded me at work, friends, and so forth. That I would uh, more and more be, was becoming interested in reading spiritual stuff, uh, meditation, particularly then in trying to live out certain virtues, certain spiritual values. And I would adopt precepts for myself, humility and compassion and so forth. And I would try to live them out. And at the time, I was uh, working in Hollywood, which is as worldly as you can get. And just in little ways, not only the fact that I would uh, try to behave uh, honestly in a situation where, in a certain sense, dishonesty was actually respected. Uh, it was admired, if not respected, let's say that. Somebody who could make a, a sharp deal uh, was somebody to be admired. 
but in little ways in terms of just in daily conversations, at lunch, listening to the values reflected in people's conversation. And this isn't just true of Hollywood. Today I work in a paint factory, and it's quite different from Hollywood, but the, the guys and the women who work at the paint factory, uh, on a much smaller scale, their values are primarily concerned with loss and gain, with getting things. Somebody drives up with a new car and everybody runs out to see the new car. And then there's a whole discussion of the bargain, you know, how you got the new car and the value and so forth. And there's some young guys there. And what they dream about is uh, in terms of making money. There's one young guy there who's uh, always has some story about how somebody uh, made money doing some deal or some this or that. And he keeps saying, and there's nothing wrong with that, is there? I would, I would take that. And this, this, the way the mind works of most people in our culture and society, even if they are formally or nominally religious, for instance, most of the people at the paint factory are Christians, go to church on Sunday and so forth. But nevertheless, in their daily lives, their values are quite different. And in terms of my own experience on my spiritual path, I began to be really torn. I would come home and uh, to my little cabin in Topanga and I would meditate and I would read and I would study these virtues and I really started to get the idea that these virtues are things to be actually practiced, to put into practice. I got most of this from Jesus, by the way, from his teachings. And he'd say things like, um, if someone sues you for your uh, shirt, give them your coat as well. And I thought, at first I thought, you know, this is a bizarre kind of teaching, but I thought, really, what's the intent here? It's to be free of all this clinging and, and hankering after goods and, and holding on to goods. And what, what would happen if you lived your life that way, really with this sort of freedom in relation to material goods? And then I realized you'd have to actually try to practice this. You know, if somebody broke into your car and stole your stereo, instead of the habitual reaction of, oh, that son of a bitch and the world's ripping me off and so forth, what attitude do you take there? That's the, that's the moment to put this teaching to practice, not just to sit around and dream about it in your cabin. And the more I started actually doing this, and I didn't make an announcement, I didn't go to work and start announcing that I here I am studying to be a saint or something, but just inwardly, I began to feel this distance this isolation. And then it made me question, first of all, what I was doing. I'd say, you know, maybe you're bananas. I mean, there are all these books, you know, written by St. Teresa and so forth and so on, but, uh, you know, who really lives this way? I mean, come on, the real world's the real world, and, you know. Uh, and then I began to feel even sometimes the world was passing me by. People were getting things, and I had stopped doing that. People were getting new cars or new houses or new mates or, you know, uh, or new jobs. And all these things no longer were uh, of prime concern to me. I no longer thought of them in terms of bringing me happiness. That doesn't mean if my car didn't, you know, break down or was totaled, I needed a new car. I mean, I'd go out and buy a car, but it was only a functional way. I didn't look to it as a source of something that could make me happy. This was began to be a radical change and radically different from the way people uh, behaved around me or the values they seemed to hold. And the way I solved it for myself was to start thinking of my teachers, 
the people I was reading who I'd never met, people who were long dead, Meister Eckhart and the Buddha uh, and so forth, as a community, that these people actually had lived. And for all their uh, perhaps worldly faults, if you had met them in person, you know, not, none of them would have been perfect for you because none of them would ever fit your image of what's perfection. You would always found some fault. But the, at least these values and this path and these teachings had governed their lives. They'd reorientated themselves. They had become citizens of this spiritual community. And then I realized this was going to be my community. And, and joining this spiritual community, this archetypal community here, then gave me the strength to carry on the spiritual path. It gave me that sense of these enduring values that I could see were cross-cultural, cross-time, cross-space, that I could recognize in a mystic writing, whether it was a Chinese mystic or a Christian mystic or an Islamic <coughs> mystic, it's all in essence the same. There was this archetypal uh, quality and character to these teachings and these values. And this is, in a certain sense, if you want to use a Buddhist terminology, I took refuge in this community, which is, in point of fact, what the, uh, what the meaning of taking refuge in the Sangha, the Buddhists take refuge in the, the Buddha, the teacher, the Dharma, the teachings, and the Sangha, <coughs> the Buddhist community. And really, from, from the most mystical point of view, the Sangha is not your embodied community around you. The Sangha is the Sangha of all the Bodhisattvas the enlightened ones. It's an archetypal community. So if you remember this, uh, this idea that comes, uh, 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 the, well, this expressed by Plato, is this idea of becoming a citizen of this spiritual republic, this spiritual community. And adhering to those values, I think you'll find it's a great help in uh, conducting your life in the world. You know where you belong. And then it doesn't matter what other people do. You don't have to be judgmental about them and so forth. You've chosen your values, your community, your life. Now, I want to say one last thing about this because there's a trick in this. Because when it's presented this way, uh, as being two cities, the city of God and the earthly city, or in Chinese uh, philosophy, the heaven, heaven and earth, the pattern that's in heaven and then the ways of the world and so forth. It sounds like a dualism. It sounds like something wooey going on here. And it sounds also rather schizophrenic, as though you're, you're living with your head in the clouds and, and here's reality. But as you walk the spiritual path and as your insight deepens, and as your compassion grows, and as you learn to see things more truly and more clearly, a funny thing happens. You realize that there is only one city. That's the city of God. There really is only one reality, and that is the reality of heaven. And the earthly city and the worldly reality is a delusion that people suffer from and the, their suffering is real, but there really aren't two cities. There is really only one. And it's the one that you began sus by suspecting was really not the real one, the ideal one. This is the one that turns out to be the real one. And the other city 
the other reality, the other world, turns out to be the, the fictitious one, the fanciful one. So that's all I had to say this morning. Any comments or questions? Does it relate to your experience? I notice this a lot with my kids. My children are real materialistic. Mm -hmm. Getting the the outfits, you know, especially my son law has to be the, the designer clothes that are more expensive, the shoes, paying $150 for a pair of shoes or something. Who did? You know? He did or you did? Yeah, he, oh. he would. He could. <laughs> you know, and it really bothers me, and I don't know how to handle that and how to, you know, I've tried talking to him, and you know, he just, there's no way he's going to hear me. How old is he? He's 15, and, you know, his peers, it's real important for him to conform. When St. Augustine was 15, his mother was very worried about him because he was running around to all the whorehouses in, in Carthage and whatnot where they, where they grew up. And uh, his mother went down to the local priest. His mother was a good Christian. And she went to the local priest and she said, what am I going to do about uh, my son, Augie? I mean, you know, the man's a sensualist. He's completely rejected God. He's, you know. And the priest said, says, don't worry about it. At this stage, you can't do anything with him. He's an adolescent. Give him time. If it's God's will that he becomes, uh, you know, uh, a, a spiritual seeker and so forth, it'll happen. But right now, there's nothing you can do. Uh, I think that's pretty good advice. So I think I'll just pass on <laughs> what Augustine's uh, mother's priest said. Uh, I think at age 15, um, in this culture particularly, you know, it's, it, I, it's too late. And I don't mean it's too late in terms of what's ultimately going to happen to him. But you can't really influence um, uh, kids at that age uh, unless they want to be. And the one thing you can do, and you can always do everywhere and all the time, is if you lead a spiritual life, if you are uh, a citizen of this spir a spiritual community, this spiritual world of heaven and so forth, and you don't have to say a word. And if you lead this life consistently and, uh, and as you know, closely as you can, uh, he may notice. Your children may notice. And then they may ask. And then there's an opportunity for a teaching. It's not a teaching, it's just an answer to a question, but this is what all teachings are anyway. Mm -hmm. You see what I mean? He may not notice. Kids at that age often don't notice what their parents are doing. I don't think I have the slightest idea what my parents were doing when I was 15. But they were thinking, that's weird what they're doing there. Oh, it's weird, right. Yeah, that's <laughs> you know, what I get from him. Yeah. Right. You're really strange, Mom. Well, <laughs> but you see, these, these things get planted. It may be really strange now. But later in life, he may think, I said, you know, I'm, my mother, she used to meditate. And, you know, and it, it's something for him to... Uh, look back to it's in his background planted as a seed this is why I think it's very important to give children a spiritual upbringing from the time they're very young uh, that doesn't mean a dogmatic doctrinaire upbringing do you know what I mean mm -hmm. but to make to be very open about what spiritual values are what the values in the house is um, and forms of worship and prayer and whatnot and children will naturally go along with that because it is what the family's doing up to a certain age, up until, you know, eight, nine, ten, or whatever, and then they'll naturally rebel, and that's perfectly fine. 
and they should. And, you know, parents get all upset, but this is, if they didn't rebel, they're, they're never really going, they're only going to end up being, you know, believers. They're never really going to start discovering for themselves. They have to start to question all this in order to come back to it with real insight. And so it's really real for them. But at least they have it in their background. They have something to come back to. It's much harder if they don't. And, you know, many parents today, my parents didn't, they because they didn't have any spiritual sense of the spiritual life. Uh, I was fortunate they put me in a school for the, uh, that was a religious school, because the school had a good uh, reputation, you know, an educational reputation. So I picked up a little in my background. But it makes it harder if you don't have anything in your background. It still does make it impossible, you know. But, you know, by the time they're adolescents, you know, whatever's, uh, all you can do is just lead your life as uh, in an exemplary fashion, without being conscious of, I'm setting an example for my kids per, per se. You just, if you just lead a good spiritual life, if you lead the best life you can lead, you are being an example, not only to your kids, but to anybody. Because, you know, don't, and this is true in general with people. Um, you know, there's nothing worse than a pushy, self-righteous uh, spiritual person. No teaching happens unless there's some interest on the part on the part of uh, someone, the the person who's who's going to possibly learn something. You know they have to have they have to show some expression of interest in what you're doing or what this is all about. You can't go out and harangue people who have no interest in this. It does it does absolutely no good. If anything, it just drives them away. It's okay. I mean, it's okay. All you are responsible for is is you at this point, you know? And, uh, you know, he's he's right at the age pretty soon. I mean, in a year or two, he's going to be fully responsible completely for his life, and you have to let that go. Right. He's his own, got his own karma, mm -hmm. if you like, his own destiny to follow. You know, you can't write his script for him. It's part of detachment. Parents have a very hard time, you know, at some point just saying, okay, you know, this is life going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have a little difficulty of reconciling the idea that the city of God is real. Um, it may be with the, with the uh, thought that there is only one reality, and that is consciousness itself. So it seems that the city of God is a further step from reality. It may not be as far from reality as the material cities, but it would be. Actually, it's to say that reality, in, in point of fact, is moral. It, uh, the unfolding of reality, of, of uh, consciousness, uh, of the forms of consciousness, are lawful, moral, beautiful, uh, uh, elegant, joyous, they, they embody, all the virtues are expression of actually what is going on, truly speaking. All the forms that consciousness takes uh, to express itself. The way in which consciousness informs itself as the world. This constant uh, joyous dance that consciousness is doing is an embodiment, an expression of of spiritual virtues. I mean, we, when we list them as virtues and separate them out, we're doing this through speech. Do you know what I mean? But they're all really expressing one thing. 
they're expressing selflessness. They're expressing, if you want to put it, I'm being a little poetic, the constant transcendence of form. The joyous informing and transcending and informing and transcending this, this throwing off of this magnificent, beautiful, uh, imaginary creation. And I'm using imaginary here in a technical sense. It's, it's created out of images, out of, uh, distinctions and boundaries, all of which are imaginary. But all of which, if we saw things truly, we would see that it was just gorgeous. It's what Jesus said. The kingdom of God is spread upon the earth and people don't see it. There is only one reality and this is the reality. And our trouble is we don't see it clearly. We see it through a glass darkly. So it appears to be this, what we call the world or worldly life or earthly life. But that's just an appearance. It really isn't like that. It's just an appearance that designer genes will make you happy. It's not true. You see? I mean, in a certain sense, her son is, is deluded. He doesn't see clearly. He has to find out for himself. It's not true that designer genes will make you happy. This is, this is the worldly society, and it's, it's a lie. It just isn't, isn't true. That's why I say there's really only one reality, and that one reality is is what we call, you're right, every time we put into words, we're expressing, and so there's a limitation. But it is what we call the Tao, the heaven, uh, the city of God, the kingdom of heaven, you know, all those sorts of expressions. They're, what I'm trying to communicate is they're not telling us about some world that's someplace else, some wooey world up in the clouds. Those are descriptions of this world as it truly is. Well, I was thinking maybe, maybe anything, be it materialistic, maybe educational, maybe spiritual, anything that increases your self-esteem in your own eyes, your self-confidence, would be good. So if if your son, you know, feels like he increases his self-value within his own mind, if his self-esteem, you know, gets up. Should be okay. Well, there are. Uh, it's interesting when you you mentioned that your son is interested in designer clothes, and this is his big thing now. Designer shoes. shoes. Yeah, <laughs> I read not too long ago, a few months ago, uh, about um, some teenagers uh, uh, who killed a kid for their mm -hmm. designer jeans in Chicago or someplace. Uh, so, I you know that you can carry this to an extreme. Um, I do think uh, that. Again, you know, in an ultimate sense, people have to learn for themselves the truth that designer clothes aren't going to make you happy. Some people know that intuitively, instinctively. They just don't get interested in that. You know what I mean? Some people have to, are denser, duller, dumber, like myself, you know? We have to go through a period of chasing the things of the world to prove to ourselves that they aren't going to make us happy. And then we have to suffer more and harder because we have to learn that's a harder lesson to learn that way. Whereas, um, oh, I don't know, a St. Teresa or a Shankar or somebody from the time they're a child, they intuitively, instinctively know that only God can make them happy. And so they skip all that stage, you know. Uh, so in the process, you do learn things in the process of dealing with the world. Uh, I, I don't want to get into an argument about words here. I personally, for various reasons, don't like the word self-esteem, but confidence, certainly. 
building confidence in the world, uh, building confidence in anything you do is very important because it's crucial on a spiritual path. You use it on a spiritual path. You know, it's, uh, the, it's very difficult uh, uh, for most people on a spiritual path to really maintain it, you know, maintain a, a meditative practice, maintain this uh, uh, acting on virtues that you've adopted, values that you've, spiritual values that you've adopted. You're constantly faced with situations where, um, you know, the, the world seems to be against you. And if you're going to be a person who's going to live this life, you have to have the confidence and the courage that, yes, you can do it. So it's not, it's not that it's a waste that her son or anybody's, you know, going after uh, designer genes. Uh, you hope that they don't fall into such delusion that they kill somebody over them. And you, you hope that they learn what they have to learn, you know, without causing that sort of suffering. Yeah, it's that process of evolution. Yeah, the growth and testing. And kids, I, I'm a strong believer in, in kids' rebellion. I was a great rebel, and I don't regret it at all. Uh, and uh, it's very important for parents to recognize this. Uh, an interesting, another interesting paradox here uh, is that if you don't, if parents don't have strong and, uh, and clear values, children have a hard time rebelling. They don't know what they're rebelling against. They don't know what they're testing. And the, it's so when it's, it's important to keep your values. And not be, um, uh, it's one thing to give children slack and leeway to test and so forth, but it's another thing to have the confidence in your own values to maintain them in the face of your children's challenges. Do you know what I mean? A lot of parents in my generation, uh, when we rebelled, our parents, their values were so weak that they crumbled under our criticism. So we went wild. You know, we became hippies and did drugs and, and threw out everything. And then that didn't work, we found out. Uh, but it's very, this is why I say it's a, you know, it seems to be uh, a dualistic uh, phase, but actually it works very harmoniously. The parents, uh, if they understand and have deep values, they m consistently maintain them. The kids grow up understanding these values. They rebel against them. This is all part of the Tao. This is all part of how life works. Do you know what I mean? It's the parents' job to... And maybe they learn something too. You know, you can always learn something from your kids as well. It's, I'm not saying it's rigid here, but uh, and the parents, the kids go through this, and it's through that process that they really make those values their own, or make what values are important to them their own. And situations do change. If you didn't have this little this uh, tussle here, then everything would be locked and rigid. We're getting a whole new uh, sense of a whole new value of the uh, sense of what our relationship to the ecology is, which isn't, hasn't been a spiritual value per se. Times have changed. It should be, and it will be, a spiritual value. Do you see what I mean? Just the room for that to happen. So it's, you know, it's this play of forces. Uh, I'll tell you, again, let me just expand, expound on this a little bit more. This whole idea of balance in nature, which is a very Taoist uh, Chinese idea, we misinterpret uh, in the West. We think of balance as a static state. And we're always, uh, a lot of people are trying to balance everything in their lives. 
and they're trying to get this aspect of their lives together and this they're going to be grounded and they're going to be uh, you know spiritual and then they're going to have their career together everything's going to be balanced as though it were like scales that you could finally get to just weigh out perfectly and then they would just stay still and of course people who try that are miserable because they never do you know they're always up and down up and down and they're kind of, they say they come to you so i'm not i'm not grounded enough i got to eat more brown rice and then they go on a brown rice diet and then they're too grounded and then they got to do some meditation or something you know and it's like this this isn't what balance means this is a, this is a complete misreading of it and i'll give you a very clear example of what balance is um when I moved to Lone Pine, I'm from a city boy. I don't know much about country life and ecology and things like that. And I lived there two years. And the first year I noticed there were uh, lots of rabbits. I mean, you couldn't step outside your cabin door and these jackrabbits would be bouncing around. And my dog had a ball chasing these rabbits, you know, just all over the place, all over the desert, these uh, jackrabbits and the little brown cottontails. And the next year, there were a lot fewer rabbits, but there were a lot of coyotes. You'd hear them traveling in packs. They'd travel around my cabin at night. They were really nice. I mean, they'd carry on these conferences. They'd have these conventions and stuff, and they'd get together and chatter and chatter, and sometimes they have concerts where they howl and sing and whatnot. But, and I noticed this, and I asked somebody who lived up there, you know, all their lives, and he said, oh, yes, he says, this is what happens. He says, you know, and, uh, there are cycles. I don't know, four or five-year cycles or whatever. The coyotes, the, the rabbits' population starts to grow, starts to grow, uh, the coyotes then population starts to grow, starts to grow. The coyotes eat too many rabbits. The rabbits go down and then there's a surplus of coyotes, but then the coyotes don't breed as much the next year because there's not as many rabbits. Now there are not as many coyotes eating so many rabbits and now the rabbits start to grow again, right? This is the balance of nature, the harmony of nature. It's not, uh, uh, it's the balance is a dynamic balance. It's a, the balance of a dancer who's constantly moving, not the balance of some scales standing still. And we don't understand this. So when things uh, seem to be uh, contradictory, you get in conflict with your kids, you know, it, it's very disturbing. It seems to be out of balance. Well, the trick is it's not out of balance, but the trick is to know how to dance with that. Harmony is the true nature of things. It's not something we have to create. What we have to learn to do is to stop <laughs> interfering with it, you know, to, to be part of that and to work with it skillfully instead of in this insistence that as though harmony is something we're going to bring about. But getting yeah. back to your original thesis of, these, of the community, it's these values are just so out of tune with you know, our, our society and culture at large, that it is a very um, exposed place for the spiritual seeker to place himself, to hold these values. And I just know my own experience has, has been um, that it's you know, it gets really worrisome when you start having radically different values from everybody you know, and from your, your culture at large, and so on. And you really start wondering, well, gosh, is there something seriously wrong with me? And uh, just from my own personal experience, the, the uh, vital importance of having that sense of spiritual community when you take a, a stand in your own life that is so radically different from what is acceptable, um, and that without that community, I, I personally could not sustain that uh, because it just feels like you're a little crazy. 
I mean, if you disagree with everybody around you and all the common knowledge of your culture, uh, it's it takes, I think, a really rare person to sustain that without the support of that community. When one or two or three or four people are gathered together, or five or six or whatever, who have first in their hearts become uh, a citizen of this spiritual community, then get together, then they can start manifesting uh, this community uh, in in their uh, gross level lives, if you like. Do you know what I mean? The big mistake, though, people then start thinking that they're going to make uh, heaven on earth, and then they get very disappointed and disillusioned with spiritual communities because everybody who's bringing, who's coming into a spiritual community, are, they're bringing the intention to do the practice, but they're also bringing all their old habits and and uh, you know, delusions and everything else. So a spiritual community is not suddenly whitewashed and everybody's pure and sits around in, in white robes or something, you know. And very often people look for that in a, in a manifest spiritual community. So as long as this is why it's important to understand the, the, the uh, archetypal nature first of the spiritual community, the inner commitment. And then, then you can be, uh, forgiving and spacious and, uh, humble about being with other like-minded practitioners it makes it much easier. And then those like-minded practitioners, you're right, they do reinforce you and help you um, to pursue the spiritual path. It's interesting that you chose this topic for this talk. It's, uh, just this past week, I've been reading an excellent book by David Stemmel Rath, who is uh, a Christian contemplative, uh, who's our contemporary here. And uh, he talks about community and uh, various types of communities. He comes from a monastic type of community. And he presented a concept that was really new to me and seemed to be really important. And that was a solitude community, a community that exists to support the individual's need for solitude and contemplation and the spiritual search. And uh, I never really heard that idea you know, put forth in such a clear manner. Uh, and it seems to me that, yes, the, the intention is not to create any kind of a utopia, but just to support the psychological needs of the individual in this personal spiritual quest. Yeah, I think that's very... Um, a, what makes a manifest spiritual community different from a, uh, an ordinary worldly community is uh, the, this recognition of what you're about, of your values. It, it doesn't mean that people are necessarily uh, going to be saints right away, or even ever necessarily, but there is a different orientation. And so uh, instead of supporting people uh, or, or uh, rivaling people in getting the goods of the earth, you are organized to support people on a spiritual path in those processes. And this could be true, by the way, of a sp the difference between a spiritual family and a worldly family, we might say. Do you know what I mean? A spiritual family will recognize that, recognize the needs for kids to have solitude or for different family members to have solitude. You know, we'll structure the family around those kinds of needs. One of the great institutions that's little appreciated anymore has fallen by the wayside in our society completely is the Sabbath which originally was a Jewish uh, institution, and it was setting aside one day for God. And it's surrounded with all sorts of, uh, you know, strictures and so forth, and even by Jesus' time, it be, had become uh, very hemmed in and very legalistic. But the essential idea of it is, one day, you don't go out and you don't do practical work, and you don't uh, 
bargain and, and hassle and do that. You set this one day aside for the remembrance of God. And you celebrate this as a, as a family unit, not as individuals. And you celebrate this in, in the, as a community in the synagogue, and then you go home and you celebrate it through the meal, the Sabbath meal. And at least uh, some of my Jewish friends have told me on the Sabbath, a husband and wife are expected to make love. That's part of the celebration of the Sabbath. Everything you do becomes spiritualized. You, you do it all with the intention of recognizing that all this is uh, a reflection of your spiritual life. Do you know what I mean? So there's, uh, you know, there's, I think there's a beautiful example of how, uh, in this sense, a family is, becomes the unit of the spiritual community, the basic unit. And then if it has these goals, it will incorporate these ideas of uh, making sure that people have time for solitude, for prayer. You know, this will become uh, part and parcel of what a family is supposed to do. Okay, well, let's uh, break and uh, get some tea, and if any of you guys want to check out the library, you're welcome to.